Hello and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Over the coming weeks we hope to explore some of the thousands of reported cases of reincarnation and bring the discussion out into the light so that we can explore the possibility of what happens to our souls after death. Today we'll explore the case of the Pollock Twins. This was the first case of reincarnation I read about as a teenager and it sparked my lifelong interest in reincarnation. Before we begin, I'd like to shout out a thank you to Ian Graham Wilson for writing up this case in his book, Mind Out of Time. It was extremely detailed and gave me a lot of information that wasn't available on the internet. I don't think it's in print any longer, but you can still get it on some of the second-hand bookstores online. At the time of writing, I think Booktopia had some copies. I'd also like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music, which can be found on the public domain website, freepd.com. In 1941, when he was 19 years old, a young man by the name of John Pollock converted to Roman Catholicism. His path to enlightenment was not a smooth one, however, as he maintained his belief in reincarnation. He would emphatically confirm his belief with the priests of St Mary's Church in Bristol frequently, even though they informed him firmly that the church did not approve of the concept of reincarnation and told him in the strongest possible terms that he was being heretical by continuing to believe in it. John became convinced in the rightness of his belief and he became determined to find evidence of reincarnation's existence. He even prayed to God, asking for proof so that he could demonstrate to the priests how wrong they were. John Pollock was in his early 20s when he met and married Florence Pollock. Florence had been a member of the Salvation Army and like the Catholic priests, she did not ascribe to John's views about reincarnation. The young married couple worked hard towards their future together, running a grocery business. Joanna Pollock was born in 1946 and was the third child to John and Florence Pollock. In 1951, Jacqueline Pollock was born. The family moved to Hexham in Northumberland and John started a small milk round business. John and Florence were kept very busy by the business and the girls were often looked after by their grandmother. The girls were inseparable. Joanna liked to mother Jacqueline, while the younger girl appeared to accept and tolerate this behaviour. Joanna liked dressing up in costumes and putting on small plays that she'd written. She was generous and shared freely with the other children. And both girls liked combing people's hair, especially their father's hair. At three years old, Jacqueline fell off her bike and hit her face on a bucket as she fell, leaving a small gash in her forehead that formed a scar. It was a permanent thin white line that was slightly depressed and it was especially visible in cold weather. Florence remained a devout Baptist, but she agreed to the girls being brought up in the Catholic faith and the girls went to the local Roman Catholic school. The girls thrived in this environment and were popular and enjoyed participating in all aspects of the school, including a Sunday Mass that was held every week for the 250 students of the school. They formed a friendship with nine-year-old Anthony Layden, and the three of them would frequently walk from their home to St Mary's Church on Sundays to attend the Mass. On a sunny, bright Sunday, the 5th of May, 1957, Joanna and Jacqueline readied themselves to attend Mass so that they could meet up with their friend and walk to the church. They put on their school blazers and berets and attached gold badges to their lapels and then met Anthony as usual, who was wearing his Sunday suit, before the three of them set off to walk to St Mary's Church. Four miles down the road, 
in a grand mansion called Horsley Hall, another resident of the town was feeling a lot less positive about life than the three children who were walking to school. Marjorie Wynne, a 51-year-old woman who was a widow, had had another rough night from lack of sleep from insomnia and depression, a condition that she had endured for the past five years. According to one site I found, Mrs Wynne had slipped into a deep depression after the death of her husband. On Saturday the 4th of May, she was acutely depressed and she knocked on the door of her sister-in-law and complained of her lack of sleep. Her sister-in-law finally persuaded her to go back to her room, which she did for another four hours. Mrs Wynne was a Christian scientist who refused to visit a doctor or use prescription medication, but on this particular morning she felt unable to go on and decided to commit suicide. Shortly before 9am she got dressed, took 14 aspirin and 3 phenobarbitone and walked out of the house intending to kill herself. She climbed into a dark green Wolseley she had purchased not long before and headed out of her driveway towards Carlisle. Moments later, a farmer named Charles Harrison noticed the Wolseley driving erratically ahead of him. As he followed the car, it displayed unpredictable changes of speed and at Battle Hill, the car swerved onto the wrong side of the road, exaggeratedly avoiding a parked van and forcing an oncoming car to brake violently. Harrison realised something was seriously wrong and decided to try and stop the vehicle by overtaking and intercepting it. He pulled alongside the Wolseley and was able to glimpse Mrs Wynne at the wheel before she swung out once more, forcing Harrison to drop back. As the two cars sped through Hexham's Shafto leases with houses on either side of the narrow road, Harrison watched with apprehension as the Wolseley swung over to the wrong side of the road again and mounted the curb before driving along the opposite pavement with the driver's side scraping along the stone garden walls of the houses. In the merest fraction of a second before impact, he suddenly became aware of the three children that were walking on the pavement, helplessly in the path of the oncoming car as it sped towards them along the footpath. Joanna was in the middle, Jacqueline was on the roadside and Anthony was the closest to the stone wall. Mrs Wynne made no attempt to slow down. Mrs Phyllis Stafford, a housewife who was waiting at the bus stop, watched in horror as she saw the children tossed into the air like cricket balls. A moment later, the Wolseley crossed back to the correct side of the road and travelled on for another 200 yards before coming to a halt and beginning to roll back down the hill with Mrs Wynne slumped in the driver's seat. Harrison ran to the car and pulled the handbrake on, taking the keys from the ignition before running with Mrs Stafford to where the children were. Tragically, there was nothing that they could do. Joanna and Jacqueline Pollock were lying on the footpath, both having died instantly from shock from the multiple injuries they received. Anthony had been flung over the hedge into the garden. He was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. The three had been the only children in the street and they were only a few hundred yards from their homes. It was a heart-wrenching tragedy for both families. The Pollocks had lost both of their female children and the Leyden family had lost their only child. The town was shocked and saddened by the deaths of the children and the incident made headlines the next day. The case remained in the papers over the coming months as the inquest and trial of Mrs Wynne occupied the pages of the Courant, Hexham's local newspaper. Florence and John both dealt with the tragedy in very different fashions. 
Florence, unable to bear the pain of the loss of her girls, tried to shut down her memories of them and she tried to put it and them behind her as she tried to pick up the pieces of her life and get back to normal. John, on the other hand, was overwrought with grief and guilt as he believed his persistence about reincarnation and his desire for proof had caused God to judge him and take his daughters as punishment. He states that on the day of the accident, he had a vision of the girls in heaven. He felt their presence in a top room of the house they lived in and took to spending a lot of time in that room as it made him feel closer to them. However, while he was grief-stricken, he also became firmly convinced that God would answer his prayers and the girls would return and be reborn to them again. Florence found John's claims to be extremely distasteful and the marriage was strained almost to breaking point by John's beliefs and statements. They did, however, manage to suppress their feelings of loss and bitterness and even managed to send a joint message of condolence to Mrs Wynne, who was now guarded and receiving psychiatric care. Shortly after the accident, Florence, immensely grateful for the help and support given to her by Father Francis Marley of St Mary's Church, made the decision to convert to her husband's faith of Roman Catholicism. While the marriage suffered from the accident, there must have remained some closeness between husband and wife, as one night early in 1958, as they lay in bed, Florence announced to her husband, I know this will please you, but it doesn't please me. I'm pregnant. Instantly, John informed her that she would have twin daughters and that this was God's way of returning Joanna and Jacqueline to them and would provide the sign that John had asked for, that reincarnation was real. Florence remained just as firmly convinced that her husband's beliefs were in error. There was no history of twins in her family and the chances of having twins is approximately 80 to 1 and of course there can be no guarantees that the twins would be female. Furthermore, when Florence attended her gynaecological appointment, she was told categorically in the presence of her family doctor and the midwife that there was only one heartbeat and one set of limbs. There was no way her husband could be right. However, against all the odds, John was indeed right. On the morning of the 4th of October 1958, while her husband was still on his milk round, Florence gave birth to twin daughters, Gillian and Jennifer. The girls were born within 10 minutes of each other, with Gillian being born first, making Jennifer the younger of the two girls. John was delighted with their births and even more convinced that the girls were reincarnated when he noticed that Jennifer bore the same white line running down her forehead that her sister Jacqueline had carried ever since hitting her head on the bucket when falling from the bike. Then Florence noticed, even though she still didn't share her husband's views, that Jennifer had a brown pigmented nevus or birthmark on her left hip that strongly resembled a thumbprint mark that Jacqueline had had that was also a similar birthmark in exactly the same place. There was no identical mark on Gillian, even though subsequent blood testing would prove that the girls were identical or monozygotic twins, meaning that they were both from the one egg that had split during gestation and formed two identical fetuses. It was theorised that the birthmark should have appeared on both twins. John Pollock took this as unmistakable proof that the twins had reincarnated and that Jennifer shared Jacqueline's birthmark. Four months after the twins' birth, the Pollocks moved to Whiteley Bay on the Northumberland coast, where John acquired a shop. The girls were raised in Whiteley and the family didn't return to Hexham until the girls were three years old when the family visited the town on a day trip. 
To John's fascination and Florence's unease, the twins immediately behaved as if they had lived in Hexham all their lives, recognising landmarks and having knowledge of landmarks before they saw them. John Pollock describes the events. He says, In Battle Hill, Hexham, we let them walk ahead of us, not guiding them. Suddenly one said, The school's just round the corner. They couldn't have seen it because it was hidden by St Mary's Church. But her sister said, that's where we used to play in the playground. We went past Hexham Abbey. One said, the swings and slides are just over there. But the swings and slides were in the park on the other side of the hill, out of sight. And as we passed our old house, they both said we used to live there. Only the deceased Joanna and Jacqueline had gone to that school and only Joanna and Jacqueline had ever played in the playground. The twins had left the house that Joanna and Jacqueline had lived in when they were four months old, so their being able to identify the house correctly is remarkable. Florence remained disbelieving, but John reveled in the things the children were describing and saying. The twins displayed behaviour that was very similar to those of their deceased sisters. The older living twin, Gillian, liked to mother the younger twin, Jennifer, even though there was only ten minutes difference in age mirroring the behaviour of the deceased sister Joanna's care of her younger sister, Jacqueline. The living twins deferred to their grandmother, just as the deceased girls had, rather than to their own mother. Florence had worked during Joanna and Jacqueline's life, and so both of those girls had been raised by their grandmother. Florence was at home by the time Gillian and Jennifer were born and was able to raise them herself, having dropped her workload. So the expectation would be that the twins would look to their mother rather than their grandmother. Both sets of girls loved combing other people's hair and both sets of girls especially liked combing their father's hair. The older twin, Gillian, was more sociable and generous with other children and shared the older deceased sibling, Joanna's, early interest in dressing up and acting. At the time of Joanna and Jacqueline's death, Jacqueline was still learning to write and she held her pen in her fist rather than between her fingers. At six years old, her teacher noted that this was unusual to the point that she suggested they correct the habit by slapping Jacqueline's hand when they saw her doing it. When the living twins, Gillian and Jennifer, began learning to write at four, Gillian instantly held the pencil properly, while Jennifer held it upright in her fist. She only started holding it properly at seven, and even as a young adult, would still sometimes revert to the fist grip. Over the next two years, the girls were able to recall events from the lives of their dead sisters over and over again. When the family moved to Whiteley Bay, the Pollocks had stored the girls' old toys in the loft in a cardboard box, unable to bear looking at them, but unwilling to part with the toys that their dead girls had loved. Gillian and Jennifer were never told of the existence of these toys, nor, at Florence's request, were the twins ever informed of their father's strange views on reincarnation. All that they knew about their dead sisters was that they had gone to heaven. However, by the time the girls were four, John and Florence felt it was wasteful to have the toys sitting there when the girls could play with them, so they brought them down, some of them, from the attic. Two old dolls and a toy ringer were left outside the door of the girls' bedroom. Florence was the one who witnessed the girls' first sight of the toys. The moment that Jennifer spied the two dolls, she said, Oh, that's Mary, and this is my Suzanne. I haven't seen her for a long time. Then turning to Gillian, she said, And there's your ringer. To which Gillian agreed and commented that Santa had given it to her for Christmas. 
Joanna, the older sister who had died, had received the ring as a Christmas gift, and Gillian, the older twin, had been the one who'd been given it next. Without any input at all from anyone else, Jennifer had correctly identified the names of the dolls and had correctly assigned the ownership of the older sister's ringer to the older twin. On another occasion, Jennifer recognised a piece of clothing that was not worn during her lifetime. Florence had originally helped John with the milk delivery business and wore a smock that she'd only used for work. Shortly after her daughters were killed, she stopped going on the rounds with John and put away the smock. John decided to do some painting one day and put the smock on to protect his clothing. Jennifer recognised the smock and asked her father, Why are you wearing Mummy's coat? She then became annoyed at Gillian for not recognising the smock. Joanna, the older sister who was killed, would be at school when Florence had originally worn the smock and she wouldn't have seen her mother wearing it. So therefore Gillian, the older twin, would not have a knowledge of it as Joanna would never have seen her mother wearing it. Another significant incident took place in one of the twins' favourite play spots in Whiteley Bay. The rear yard of the house was backed by a lane in which cars were parked. Another significant incident took place in one of the twins' favourite play spots in Whiteley Bay. The rear yard of the house was backed by a lane in which cars were parked. One day, when the twins were around four years of age, they were playing in the yard. John Pollock suddenly heard hysterical screaming coming from the yard. His heart leapt into his mouth and he ran out into the yard to find out what was going on. He found both girls crouched in a corner of the yard with their arms around each other. They pointed at a car that had just started up and was directly facing towards them, screaming, The car! The car! It's coming at us! Theoretically, the car was presenting almost the same angle and aspect that Mrs Wynne's car had that Joanna and Jacqueline would have seen just before they were hit and killed. The most macabre incident of all was seen by Florence. She'd left the twins playing quietly in their playroom while she worked downstairs. After a while, she crept back up to the room to peek in on the girls to make sure they were all right as they were being quiet. To her astonishment and horror, she found Gillian cradling Jennifer's head in her hands, saying, The blood's coming out of your eyes. That's where the car hit you. When John Pollock came home, he found his wife distraught and overwhelmed as she recounted the tale tearfully to him. Florence was finding herself increasingly unable to bear these strange encounters as they appalled her and rocked her own beliefs to the core. Fortunately for Florence's peace of mind and perhaps even her sanity, not long after the twins' fifth birthday, the memories ceased as mysteriously as they had begun. The girls stopped recounting events from the past and went on to have normal experiences and lives and their recollections of any past events disappeared. John Pollock kept his promise to Florence and he had not discussed his views on reincarnation with the girls while they were young. It was not until both girls were 13 that they learned anything from their parents about the circumstances surrounding the deaths of their sisters and the strange events that punctuated their own young lives up to the age of five. They accepted their parents' belief that they'd been reincarnated but they didn't share that viewpoint, showing mild scepticism about reincarnation. Gillian, however, experienced some inner visions in 1981 in which she saw herself playing in a sandpit with her brothers. She described the house, gardens, lawns and orchards that matched a house that the family had lived in in Wickham when Joanna was younger than four. Gillian had never been to Wickham. 
So do I believe the Pollock twins are their reincarnated sisters? Well, that one's a tricky one. I have to say there are some aspects of this case that I find compelling and some I find troubling. Firstly, the recounted moments of the girls remembering Hexham and places and landmarks and the recounted tales of them remembering the accident are compelling. But then on the other side, there are a few problems that I have with it. Firstly, John's own insistence of a belief in reincarnation makes it impossible to consider him an unbiased witness in the recounting of events that occurred. And unfortunately, most of the events related are eyewitness accounts from either John or Florence. For example, let's take a look at the scar on Jennifer's forehead. As I recounted earlier, Jacqueline, the younger daughter that was killed, had a scar on her forehead that was caused by hitting her face on a bucket as she fell from her bicycle. It was a long, white, thin line that was indented and could be seen more clearly on cold days on her forehead. When Jennifer, the younger twin by 10 minutes, was born, John was delighted to point out a white scar she had on her forehead that matched the scar of her dead sister. However, this scar seems to have faded or gone away as the twins grew and wasn't identifiable later on. While scars may fade, they never become completely invisible, so I find myself doubting that the scar on Jennifer was ever really there at all. My own suspicion is that perhaps John saw some remnant of tissue from the birth, or perhaps Jennifer received some minor injury from the birth that was apparent at the time, but healed without leaving a scar. Whatever he saw, this has been recounted as a firm fact by John, and proof of reincarnation of the sisters, but there is no doubt that the scar had disappeared as the children aged. John wanted so badly to believe in reincarnation that, although he might not have spoken to the girls about his reincarnation beliefs, how much did he consciously or subconsciously lead them to facts about items from the past? The fact that Joanna and Jacqueline's toys were placed outside the children's bedroom doors is an unusual way to redistribute the toys, and it meant that the toys were instantly given an importance by their method of discovery. Did the girls share the same bedroom or separate bedrooms? If they had separate bedrooms, were the older child's toys left outside of the older twin's room and the younger sister's toys outside the younger twin's room? We just don't know because that's never been discussed. John left his milk run business and became a bookseller by trade and his study was crammed with books about reincarnation and the occult. He admitted that he was prepared to go to any lengths to prove his reincarnation beliefs. So the twins must have been aware that their father was someone with alternative beliefs and they would have been surrounded by books discussing the concept. It's impossible to prove that they never once saw any of this reference material. Florence Pollock's accounts could be seen as more truthful as she was sceptical about reincarnation and was distressed and frightened by the events she supposedly witnessed. But again, many of these accounts were related by John in interviews, so it's still unclear if they're completely factual recounting or whether they've been embellished by John in his quest to prove his reincarnation beliefs. A fact that is little known and not often recounted is that Joanna and Jacqueline had brothers at the time they were killed. The newspaper article clearly states that Joanna and Jacqueline came from a family of six, so both brothers were around at the time of their sisters' deaths. Joanna was 11 and Jacqueline was six when they were killed, so the boys would definitely be old enough to remember the details of the deaths. They would also surely be aware of their father's belief in reincarnation. And it sounds like John was very vocal about his belief that the girls would come back to the family. 
So while John and Florence might not have discussed reincarnation to the twins, how much did the boys speak about their dead sisters, the things they did, who they were and what toys they played with? Did they ever tease them or talk about it with them to try and frighten their sisters, as boys often like to do? There's no proof either way for this question, as there's no record made of whether the boys spoke about their deceased sisters or reincarnation to the twins, but it does provide another possible source of information for the girls to find out about the past. With all of these possible contamination points and the level of notoriety and fame that the case had been given, I find it impossible to believe that the twins remained fully unaware of their past or their father's beliefs. This story unfolded in a small parish town in England, in the conservative atmosphere of the 50s. John was a local milky, so he would have been well known in the community. Even in 2011, Hexham only had 11,829 people, and it would probably have been an even smaller village in the 50s. The deaths of Joanna, Jacqueline and Anthony shocked and saddened the town, and the accident was big news to the locals. The family definitely would have been a topic of conversation throughout the town. In an extremely conservative country village, John would have been seen as exotic to say the least with his insistence that his dead children had returned to him in the twins. Having lived in a town that was six times larger than Hexham, I know how people love to gossip and pass information about on other locals and this would have been particularly juicy gossip indeed. I just can't believe that nobody ever commented on it to the children or to John himself when he was out with the children. However, that is just my guess and my gut feeling. For me, the most telling blow against the veracity of the Pollock's twins case is the twins' behaviour themselves. And this is best demonstrated when comparing the twins to other cases. Most children have past life memories at a very early age and will speak about them as soon as they can verbalise what they're remembering. As they get older, around five to seven years of age, the memories fade and the children's lives then seem to take a completely normal progression from that point forward. However, while these children eventually forget the memories, the children do remember that they did have those memories. When an interviewer who was holding an interview with Christian Haupt pointed to a picture of Lou Gehrig and asked, so let me get this straight, you really believe you were? Christian nodded emphatically, pointed to the picture and finished for the reporter, Lou Gehrig. At the time he was stating this so confidently, Christian had definitely lost his memories, but he was still acutely aware that they had existed and he remained firm in his belief that he was indeed Lou Gehrig in the past. Chase Bowman was slightly older, at around the age of five when he started remembering his past life memories, which makes him slightly unusual. However, when he sensed his memory starting to leave him, he wanted to record it so he wouldn't forget. So he made a series of drawings about the things that he remembered and wrote down some of the details. So both children acknowledge and remember having the memories. They seem to value the experience and recognise it as a unique and special event. The Pollock twins supposedly lost their memory of their past lives at around the age of five, as could be expected in these cases. But I've never seen it recounted anywhere that the twins themselves ever acknowledge having had the memories in the first place, and both twins remain sceptical about reincarnation. The Pollock twins have no sense of connection to their supposed memories. They seem puzzled by the recounting of events by their parents and perplexed by what happened. 
Julian did say she experienced some inner memories of living in Whiteley in 1981 and playing in the sandpit with her brothers there. Julian had never been to Whiteley, so could have had no description of it, and she apparently did describe the house and gardens that the family once lived in accurately. But the boys certainly would have had a memory and may have discussed it. She may have read some of the articles surrounding discussion of her case, or she may have seen family photos of the house and the children at play. I am not saying that I think John, Florence or the twins are lying or being deliberately deceptive or manipulative. It is important to remember that this is a very tragic case and the family did indeed lose their two beautiful daughters in a tragic and traumatic way. The grief the Pollocks felt was overwhelming to the point it almost destroyed their marriage. I think John wanted to believe it so badly that he read a lot more into it than was there. The trouble is, there were so many hints and possible information sources that could have reached the little girls that it's impossible to strain out what's fact and what is behaviour gleaned from their interest in a family mystery that literally enveloped them from all sides. I just can't believe they reached the age of five without knowing something of the past. Kids are sponges and they absorb a lot of information from their parents and siblings. I do think John was so focused on his goal to prove reincarnation exists that he was unable to be unbiased about it. So what facts can undeniably be proven in this case? When you sift them out, they become quite scanty. Obviously, the fact of the Pollock's sister's deaths are undeniable and the events leading up to the deaths and the subsequent inquest and trial have been well documented, as was the birth of twins to John and Florence, seemingly against the odds. The GP's inability to see twins at Florence's checkup is interesting as the splitting of the egg that creates twins usually occurs very early in the piece at either day two, four or six of the pregnancy. However, there have been cases of doctors missing twins and we must remember that this was playing out in the 50s. Ultrasounds had only been performed for a few years and CT scanning wouldn't become available until the mid-60s. Most medical sites agree that to miss twins for an entire pregnancy is almost unbelievable, as both fetuses should be apparent by week 10. But who knows, maybe it was a case of less than diligent doctor rather than a case for reincarnation, or maybe it is proof that it was reincarnation. However, sadly, that's about it. There is no real evidence that can be undeniably substantiated or any witnessed accounts of the children's behaviour by anyone other than John or Florence. The brown thumbnail scar on Jennifer's hip is definitely there and remained as she grew up, but I haven't seen any photos or physical proof that her deceased sister Jacqueline definitely had a birthmark in the same place as being claimed. In fairness to Jacqueline's parents, however, they could not have known that Jacqueline was going to die and therefore there would have been no reason to document or photograph Jacqueline's birthmark and this information may exist in medical files somewhere that have never been released to prove the case. There have been some comments about one twin having a birthmark while the other does not, citing it as remarkable proof in the case of reincarnation, as identical twins should be identical. But some very quick research on the internet demonstrates that identical twins often have different birthmarks, freckles and moles from each other, although they can share similar ones as well that are often on the mirror side of each twin. For example, a mole on the left leg of one twin may be found on the right leg of the other. I think John firmly believes in the case and I don't think he deliberately set out with a viewpoint to deceive people. It must be remembered that we are talking about a family that lost two daughters in a horrifying tragedy.
that would be difficult for any parent to cope with. John and Florence both sound like remarkable, stoic, brave, compassionate people who worked hard to keep their marriage alive in the middle of an unbearable tragedy. The Pollock twins seem to have grown up as normal, healthy, well-adjusted girls, although they have kept an extremely low profile, which I guess can be understood given the controversy that surrounded them as children. Children who have experienced past life memory recall often state that they had a choice in the family that they would be reborn into, and they chose the family that would allow them the best advantage to learn the lesson they wanted to learn in this incarnation. This case led me to the quirky thought that if that is the case, then John himself certainly achieved his own obvious life lessons of spreading the word about the possibility of reincarnation. The Pollock case was and remains one of the more highly discussed reincarnation stories in the Western world, and it did start an awareness about reincarnation for a lot of people, including me. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Life Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them. And I can be reached by email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or through my website reincarnationplr.com. If you'd like to keep up to date on my latest podcast posts, you can find me on Facebook under Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited or on Twitter and Instagram and you can find me there under reincarnationplr. We'll be back again soon with another episode. But until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose.